0: Hello everybody, and welcome to Ghost Stories of Canada. My name is Zach and I'll be your host this summer as we delve into folklore from coast to coast to coast. This is the summer 2019 podcast of Discover the Past Ghostly Walks based out of Victoria, British Columbia. My goal is to collect and relay the best ghost stories I can find from each province and territory. This means I'll be searching through books, web pages, and videos, as well as reaching out to other tour companies across the country to gather stories. You can expect a new episode to be released every Monday and Thursday, starting July 1st and ending mid August. Welcome to Episode 4 New Brunswick. Today's episode will be our final journey into the folklore of Atlantic Canada, and I hope you'll have noticed that each episode so far has had its own unique feel that reflects the narrative of its corresponding province. With Newfoundland, we looked at a lot of stories that reflected isolation, such as with the Point Amour lighthouse in Labrador and being alone in bed at night and visited by the old hag. Newfoundland itself is rather isolated from the rest of Canada in distance, It even has its own time zone, and as such has certainly cultivated its own culture, separate from the Maritime provinces. With Nova Scotia, there was a lot more of a deeply rooted folklore with stories based in more rural communities and day-to-day life. Uh, What could be more ordinary, for example, than asking your kids to look after your house while you're out for the night? That's perfectly fine, until you come back to discover your daughter missing and later find out that she was axed by her brother. PEI as well had ties to an older age in a simpler time, with just as much superstition, but the stories were entirely shaped by the province's landscape. Lots of ocean, not a lot of land. With New Brunswick, I suspect you'll notice subtle differences as we look at a province with a greater land-to-coastline ratio and with a long history of forestry. You'll also notice how the stories begin to be more influenced by the presence of the French in the area, something that will tie it strongly to our next episode in Quebec. We'll begin today by examining one such story, which centers around a French nun in Northumberland County, followed by a trek into one of the old lumber camps. Eastern quarter of New Brunswick in 1995 would have you find several communities close together along a river valley. The communities were Newcastle and Chatham, the two largest ones, and also Douglas Town, Lodgeville, Nelson, Norden, Bushville, Ferry Road, Moorfield, Chatham Head, Douglasfield, Chatham Parish, Glenel Parish, and Nelson Parish, This was rather complicated, and you are probably not familiar with any of these places except for maybe Chatham. Instead, you'll recognize them by their name upon amalgamation, Miramichi. It's in fact now the fifth largest city in the province. Back in the 1750s, a French nun named Sister Marie was returning to the settlement of French Fort Cove, which is just west of the modern-day northern area of Miramichi. She had been helping a Mi'kmaq woman through a rather difficult childbirth, and was absolutely exhausted. Her return home saw her approach a bridge, and as she arrived at it, two men leapt from the bushes and attacked her. They had escaped from a nearby leprosy colony and were almost delirious. There was treasure buried in the area, and they had heard that Sister Marie was the only one who knew its location. Sister Marie refused to divulge any information, and pleaded for them to let her continue on her way unharmed. The plea was rejected, and seeing that she was not going to help them, one of the men drew a sword and severed her head from her body. The head was lobbed into the river while the body was left to bleed out on the wooden planks. The corpse, well, most of the corpse, was discovered the next day by some French troops, who sent her body back to France to be buried. The head was never located. This was problematic. Sister Marie's headless body has been seen in the area ever since, along with the disembodied voice of a woman asking in French for you to help her find her head, so that her soul may depart in peace. She's persistent, too, apparently following people all the way inside their homes and appearing in their bedrooms at night. The incentive she offers in exchange is that if you assist her in finding her head, she will lead you to the location of the buried treasure. No one has yet to take up her offer, though, even after all these years. For some reason, I suppose people just don't think that this is a fair deal. Perhaps they just don't see eye to eye with Sister Marie's headless ghost. was an Irishman who came to New Brunswick in the 1860s when he found work as a cook for a lumber camp along the Miramichi River. By all accounts, he was a friendly, energetic fellow, and despite his upbringing was reported to be an excellent cook. The men would be out in the forest working away until the telltale whooping and hollering of Peter Ryan would bring them hustling back to camp for a good meal. One cold winter's day, the crew set out for the trees, while the foreman stayed behind with Brian. The foreman explained there was a good deal of paperwork to finish, and he hoped to join them in the afternoon. Well, the hours passed quickly for the crew as they toiled away in the bush, but noon came and went, with no sign of the foreman, and more importantly, no whooping cries heard from the cookhouse. The crew returned to the camp of their own volition and discovered the cookhouse empty inquiring of the foreman the whereabouts of their friend peter they learned that he had come down with a serious illness that morning and had died rather suddenly this was quite a shock to the crew as ryan had been in good health and fine spirits the night before but they would have to make do there was no effort to dig a grave for their friend the cook as the ground was too cold to move easily so they left him stretched out in the snow that night as they were lying in their cots The air was filled with the distinctive whoops and hollers of Peter Ryan. The woodsmen were petrified. One of them tiptoed out with a lantern and saw in the darkness nothing but Peter Ryan's corpse lying there on the ground. The whole night, the poor crew endured the telltale whoops puncturing the dark stillness of the forest outside their cabins. Not much sleep was had by anyone. The following morning, they grabbed some shovels and dug a shallow grave for Ryan, covering him back up with dirt and snow. They figured that some kind of a burial would appease his spirit, but it was not so. The whooping continued for days on end and the crew eventually abandoned the camp for a different location. During the transition, the foreman went into town and never came back. Peter Ryan was well known to have a good chunk of cash on him at all times. Could the foreman have possibly been so desperate for money that he killed Peter and stole the coin? As months went by without a trace of the foreman, everyone who knew the story began to agree that murder was the most likely case of Ryan's death, not illness. No more lumber camps sprang up in the area after that. No one would work in those woods. Even the bravest men would hear the whoops echoing through the empty trees and run back to town as fast as their legs would carry them. A priest finally ventured in and blessed the burial site, but the whoopings continued as they do to this day, still sounding above the treetops and traveling down the riverbed, landing upon the ears of locals who don't often enter the woods themselves for the very same reason. two stories are a little bit more lighthearted, although for the people at the time they were a very serious matter. They also reinforce the style of folklore and beliefs that were and still are present in the Maritimes, and they serve as an intriguing glimpse into the lives of the people that lived there in the past. In researching ghost stories, one comes across all sorts of weird stuff. I personally love reading text from the 1800s due to the old-timey language used all throughout. In particular, I love the term used in the St. John Daily Sun in 1888, which was brought to my attention through John Robert Colombo's book True Canadian Ghost Stories. It starts off with a bang, and I quote... The fire spook is again at large. Now, you're probably familiar with the term ghosts, as well as demons, poltergeists, spirits, wraiths, and all sorts of rather frightening words. Fire spook, though, really? Of everything they could have called it, they chose to name it the fire spook? It was probably a very appropriate term at the time, but wow, have things ever changed? The fire spook wreaked havoc at the house of Duncan Good that year. A merchant by the name of Esty had been visiting and was horrified to see a perfectly normal almanac hanging on the wall suddenly burst into flames. Duncan Good quickly rushed to put it out and explains to Mr. Esty that the almanac was the 47th item to mysteriously catch fire within the past 48 hours. Everything from curtains and carpets to books and clothing had ignited at one point or another, and it was driving the good family up the wall, not to mention the danger it put them all in. Even Duncan's barns had caught fire, one of which was completely destroyed in a matter of minutes. It was all too much. After another few days of this, Duncan and his family packed up what they could and departed. Their house burned down shortly after. As good as the family had been, the fire spook had gotten the better of them. Mm, that's no good. Um When it came to scaring families out of their homes, the fire spook certainly had the goods to do it. There's a good pun in here somewhere. I'll let you try and do better. Comment on the episode if you think you've got one. Apparently, this incident was very similar to something that happened in nearby Woodstock the year before. A number of proposed causes came up, the most scientific being that there was a particular combination of natural gases that just happened to be in the perfect environment to combust. This was never tested in any way, though, and that left the door open for suggestions like spirits, the judgments of sins, and good old-fashioned witchcraft. Hundreds of people flocked to the old property to see the carnage for themselves. No one could decide on the exact cause of the flames, but there was one thing all the onlookers could agree about. The fire spook had gotten that family good. back to the Nova Scotia episode, where I briefly stated how folklore and ghost stories change depending on which area of Canada you visit. Again, out east you'll find a lot more stories about Forerunners, for example. I'll often pick up a book about ghost stories from Atlantic Canada, and there will be an entire chapter devoted to Forerunners. I haven't included a ton about them in this podcast, though, because quite honestly, I find the stories a bit predictable and very similar to one another. That doesn't mean good stories don't exist. The story of the thing in the night that led off the Nova Scotia episode is one of my favorite stories of the series so far. What I mean is that forerunners usually fit into this sort of sequence. A person sees, or more likely hears, some unexplained happening. It's not usually frightening, even to the person in the story. They will either know it means bad news is on the horizon, or they find out a few days later. The big reveal at the end is usually that somebody they know has died. You see, they're somewhat formulaic, and not usually something to keep a person up at night. There is no continued haunting, there is no history to give the story any context, and there are not usually any kind of surprising twists. Don't get me wrong, I don't mean to discredit those experiences, and I surely see them as unique parts of Canadian folklore, but they're snippets of isolated events, and they're hard to weave into the narrative of a province in the way that I hope to structure these episodes. The same principle applies for stories about the devil, an equally East Coast aspect of Canadian folklore. Do you remember the story from Diligent River, Nova Scotia, about the girl who loved to dance? Here's a very similar one, also from Bluenose Ghosts. I will leave it to you to see if you can come up with the sequence that most devil stories are structured around. Despite her mother's wishes, a young New Brunswick lady snuck out of her house one evening and trotted off to the local dance. She had become absolutely obsessed with dancing, to the point where she hardly gave thought to anything else. Her mother had hoped to break her out of it, but clearly to no avail. She arrived at the dance and immediately found partners and hit the floor, seldom taking a break. She got herself so worked up that she threw herself to the middle of the room. I love to dance, she shouted. I love to dance so much that I'd dance with anyone, even the devil. At that very moment, a handsome stranger emerged from the crowd at the back of the hall and walked straight up to her. He offered her a dance. She accepted eagerly, and as the music played, she was swept off her feet. This man, whoever he was, boy, could he dance, like an angel, she thought. Or rather not. Angels don't dance like that. She happened to glance down and saw, protruding from his pant leg, a cloven hoof. She screamed and backed away. The music came to a halt, and the man disappeared through the throng of people staring at her. Everyone in the room had their eyes glued to her hand. The imprint of the devil's mark was burned into her skin. She died of shock. There are four stories in this next set, all of which tie back to specific events and places associated with death. It's no coincidence that all four involve execution by hanging. Hangings were very quick, clean, and easy ways to dispose of criminals back in the day, and it was even seen as a rather humane way to take somebody's life. In these stories, however, the procedure plays a very unique role for each tale, and illustrates how it's never something to be taken lightly. In
1: 1967,
0: Randy Bishop was only 15 years old. He lived out in rural New Brunswick, but there was a small town about an hour's walk away. The town had a movie theater, and Randy would meet up with some friends there every weekend to catch a show, or would even sometimes hang out there by himself and watch a few films. There wasn't much else to do around those parts, but Randy didn't mind. He loved the movies. His walk home took him along a lonely road through the nighttime air, and right past Gallows Hill, where stood the old Hanging Tree. Upwards of fifty men were apparently hanged there some two hundred years ago, and the ground around it was supposed to be quite haunted. Randy never felt uncomfortable or frightened there. He actually felt quite calm and would almost always take a little break to sit at its base and look up at the stars. One of those nights, he had his back up against the bark and his eyes turned towards the heavens. It was about a quarter to eleven, but he was in no rush to get home. As he sat there, he heard a noise, which at first he took to be the wind in the branches. But it grew louder and louder, unmistakably the sound of horse hooves coming in his direction. Randy listened, as it sounded as if they had stopped on the other side of the hanging tree. A little unsettled, he ran around to check the roadside, but saw nothing. That's when he heard the rope a coarse buzzing like a thick rope being slung up over a branch and tightened he wanted to run to get away from there but found his legs wouldn't budge suddenly right in front of him dangled a man strung up by the neck randy watched as the man kicked and struggled violently jerking back and forth on the rope The man's eyes bulged out and his face turned a horrid shade of dark purple before his whole body went limp, and he disappeared. Randy Bishop ran the whole way home, and for many years he never set foot in front of that tree again, terrified of what fruits he might find dangling from its deadly branches. fallen. The mist has rolled in. Sliding back your windowpane, you sneak out of your bedroom window and out into the backyard. There, the rest of your friends from school are waiting. Together you head down the street to Gorge Road, where the streetlights are few and far between. You all arrive at a nondescript slab of concrete on the side of the road where you wait. Just wait there in the darkness no one speaks. The sound of a branch snapping in the bushes sends you all scurrying back to your homes, satisfied that you have now braved the gravesite of Rebecca Lutz and lived to tell the tale. Rebecca Lutz was born in 1860 and lived in Moncton on a farm with her family. By the time she was 16, the farmers nearby had had enough with her. Recent years had seen terrible times fall upon the farming communities in Moncton. There were long droughts which had made the earth around very dry and very flammable. Bush fires swept through the lands, burning what little crops there were. Adding on to that were the very mysterious circumstances under which local livestock had been disappearing. All of this added up to a very tense community with nowhere to turn for help. When there's nothing a group of people can do, they often need to find someone to point their fingers at, some cause for all their misfortunes. They couldn't explain it logically, so the very real world of the occult became the foundations of their accusations. Eerie lights had been seen along the footpaths near the Lutes farm, and there were rumors of Rebecca practicing witchcraft in the forest. Of course, she denied all of this, but the town so desperately needed someone to blame, and Rebecca was the perfect fit. In 1876, the 16-year-old Rebecca Lutz was accused of being a witch. There was no exciting process of burning her at the stake. The punishment in English law was a good old-fashioned hanging. They strung up a rope and suspended her from a tall poplar tree, and there is where Rebecca died. That wasn't enough for the townsfolk, though, as they certainly had endured hard times which they wished so desperately to come to an end. To ensure Rebecca would cause them no more grief, they buried her face down. That way, if she was still alive and tried to claw her way out of the coffin, she would be clawing toward hell. For good measure, they also encased her coffin in cement. These people clearly meant business." After the hanging, people would see Rebecca's face, staring back at them through the church windows as they attended mass. She would be accusing them of turning so harshly on her. Always accompanying her was a black cat, the sure sign of her familiar, because, of course, she had to be seen with a black cat. I suppose in the days following the murder, for that's what we can safely call it, some of the townspeople began to feel a little remorse. They needed to reassure themselves that they had done the right thing, and so, yes, Rebecca's ghost was always seen with the black cat. Sometimes the cat was seen by itself, sitting over top of the grave and would vanish without a trace. The sightings have quite died down ever since, you know, all the townsfolk of the time died, but the location of her grave, now marked by a concrete slab, is a sort of rite of passage for young people in the area. Even now, there are still reports of eerie lights in the forest nearby, but whether that's Rebecca or something else entirely is still unknown. a peninsula that juts out into the Bay of Fundy, you'll find the community of Black's Harbor. A large sardine factory stood in Black's Harbor until 1997, and right up until it closed it was known for a particular oddity. Every February, the night shift workers would hear a thump, thump noise coming from the boiler room. No source for the noise was ever detected, although that didn't make hearing it any easier. The explanation for the sounds likely stems from the 1930s, where a German fellow showed up in Black's Harbor. He was in his forties and had lost both his legs in the Great War, but he managed to find a job in the sardine factory running the boilers at night. During his first year in New Brunswick, he fell in love with and married a very pretty young woman from the area. Soon after, however, a cloud covered the horizon of their previously happy existence he discovered his wife was cheating on him, having an affair with a much younger and handsomer man than he, who also worked at the sardine factory but during the daytime, therefore of course having evenings off when the German man was out at work. The husband was understandably devastated but promised to forgive his wife if she would give up the affair and leave the whole mess behind. Of course, she said she would do exactly that, and for a few more months, things returned to normal. That February, the husband learned that she had lied to him about closing off the relationship with her lover. She hadn't skipped a beat. This whole time, she had been continuing on with her affair. He was at work one night, mulling his poor situation over in his mind, when he and the other man on duty heard one of the boilers give out. The other man made to get up and go have a look, but before he could stand, the German fellow said he didn't mind going to check it out. Content with remaining seated, the other worker allowed the German to walk over to the boiler room. After about five minutes, the worker heard a thump-thump noise coming from the boilers. Confused, he ran to the room to check on what the noise was. When he arrived, he found the German dangling from a rope, dead he had taken his own life, likely too distraught by his wife's affair. The two thumps were very easily explained. Having wooden legs, the German had simply looped the rope around his neck, sat back, and kicked off his legs one by one, allowing himself to die there, suspended in the boiler room. Island is a strange location. It's southeast of St. Andrews, right by the American border, and is accessible via two ferries and an intermediary island, although it has a direct bridge over to Maine. While it's a pretty place, at night it takes on a darker tone. A woman is seen wandering through the trees with a lantern and a shovel, she ignores anyone who addresses her. In fact, she seems rather frightened by the presence of anyone nearby. Her name is, or rather was, Mrs. Dunbar. Back in the early days of settlers, St. Andrews, like all good towns, needed some gallows, Mrs. Dunbar's husband was an excellent builder, and although they lived on Campobello Island, his reputation was such that they called him out for the job instead of hiring a local worker. When the gallows were finished, the people of St. Andrews were very impressed with the handiwork and paid Mr. Dunbar with a sack of gold. He took his payment and brought it home, but hid it from his wife. Mr. Dunbar was a gambler and a drinker, and often squandered the family earnings on his vices. He knew that by hiding the sack he would have easy access to the money at all times, while his wife would have no control over its usage. Mrs. Dunbar knew that he had hidden it from her, and she knew exactly why, too. One night, while Mr. Dunbar was out drinking, his wife began to search the house for the sack of gold. She checked all her husband's usual hiding spots and came up empty-handed. She pressed on, knowing that he would be gone for some time, and left no stone unturned. Finally she found it, and quickly grabbed a shovel and a lantern, and ventured out into the trees to bury it, stopping him from wasting it on alcohol. Upon Mr. Dunbar's return, he discovered that his sack of gold was missing— He immediately suspected his wife, and demanded that she tell him where it was. She feigned ignorance, though, which only served to enrage Mr. Dunbar. Where was the gold? The angrier he became, the more she protested her innocence. He was a large and violent man, but she believed that if she could win out the argument this one time, it would make for a great improvement on both their lives." She continued, therefore, to deny him the information he sought. Mr. Dunbar was at his wits' end. I'll give you one more chance, he growled, to tell me where the gold is. Mrs. Dunbar steadfastly refused. Her husband gave a snarl and leapt on her, strangling her to death. Still worked up in a frenzy, he was not satisfied, he grabbed an axe and began cutting his wife up into pieces, stuffing them inside a pickle barrel. Once he had calmed down, he methodically washed the axe and wiped up the blood that covered the floor. He needed a drink. He wandered over to the nearest pub, where, after a few drinks, he began to brag about what he had just done. The alcohol had loosened his tongue on a secret which should never have passed his lips. His audience was horrified and lost no time in turning him into the authorities. It was not hard to prove what he had done. He even tried to defend his actions by lamenting how his wife would not tell him where his hard-earned money had been hidden. He was convicted of murdering her and was sentenced to hang. The nearest gallows was, of course in st andrews mr dunbar's neck was snapped and he dangled freely on the very structure he himself had built the payment for which became the source of the quarrel which landed him there he had taken such great care to ensure that all hangings performed on that gallows were to be quick and easy never once imagining that it would be to his own benefit on a day not long after There's nothing I love more than a good story, except perhaps a story from someone that I know personally. A few years ago, when I first heard it told, I remember how it stuck with me so vividly. It was so descriptive and eerie, and yet it left a lot for me as a listener to simply piece together in my imagination. I'm going to attempt to recreate that experience for you here, but before we dive into it, there are some important announcements which you'll want to hear. First, I would like to acknowledge that these stories are not my own, nor are they collected by Discover the Past walking tours. The stories you heard today are from various websites and public forums, as well as from the following books. Great Canadian Ghost Stories by Barbara Smith, published by Touchwood Editions in 2018, which you can find on Amazon or through Chapters in Indigo. This is one of the newest books in Barbara's vast archives, and I highly recommend grabbing it the moment you find it in a store. Ghost Stories of the Maritimes by Vernon Oikel, published by Lone Pine Publishing in 2001, available online through Amazon and Chapters Indigo. Ghost Stories of the Maritimes, Volume 2, by Vernon Eichel, published by Ghost House Books in 2001, and available online through Amazon, Chapters Indigo, and LonePinePublishing.com. True Canadian Ghost Stories, by John Robert Colombo, published by Prospero Books in 2003, and available online at Amazon and AbeBooks.com. Blue Nose Ghosts by Helen Creighton, printed in 1957 by Best Book Manufacturers Incorporated, and republished in 1994 by Nimbus Publishing Limited, available online through Amazon, Chapters Indigo, and Nimbus.ca. As we prepare to depart the Atlantic provinces, I would like to give a special thank you and take a moment to appreciate the wonderful authors who collect stories about these four beautiful provinces. We won't be seeing their stories again during this series, so a big thank you to Dale Jarvis, Vernon Eichel, and Julie Watson for the work that they do out east. If you ever see any book with their name on it, do not hesitate to purchase it and thoroughly enjoy it. You should be able to find this podcast on discoverthepast.com under the podcasts tab and on the home site of ghoststoriesofcanada.podbean.com. We're also on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and Apple Podcasts. It would be incredibly kind and helpful of you to leave us a rating and review. The more reviews and the higher ratings we get, more people we can reach with these stories. If you don't know what to say in the review, consider writing, fire spooks are pretty scary, but what's even scarier is the thought of never having found this podcast, or something like that. The music for this podcast was written and recorded by yours truly. My name is Zach, and I'm one of the guides for Discover the Past Ghostly Walks. Thank you to Ian Gibbs and Brennan Storr on the Ghost Story Guys podcast for their shout-out. If somehow you've never heard of their podcast, you are in for a real treat. Check out the Ghost Story Guys on wherever you listen to your podcasts, or just Google them and their website will come up. It's a fantastic show. Thanks to Ian in particular for allowing me to use his story, which will be coming up right after these announcements. Again, it's one of my favorites that I've heard on their show, and Ian is an awesome guy and also one of our guides at Ghostly Walks in Victoria here. Our next episode will be released Monday, July 15th, and will feature Quebec. La Belle Provence has a long history with dark shadows in every corner. We'll dive into well-known stories and obscure tales alike, and it will not be something that you'll want to miss. If you're interested in learning more about what we do, head on over to discoverthepast.com. All throughout the summer, we run historical walking tours every day at 10.30 a.m. and 2 o'clock p.m., everything from Emily Carr-centered tours to guided walks through Canada's oldest Chinatown. Our specialty tours, however, are in the evening. Every night of the week, we run our ghostly walks. We have eight different routes, a different route at 7.30 p.m. for every night of the week, and then our classic route every night at 9.30 p.m. All our tours are 90 minutes long and start at 812 Wharf Street outside the Visitors Information Center. The only exception is our Chinatown History Walk which starts at 1689 Government Street outside the Starbucks. We would love to see you out on one of our tours. Come say hello and let us know what you think of the podcast. I've already done a lot of talking about this final story. I only hope I can do it justice, and wish that none of you listeners ever find yourselves in a situation like the one that follows. As I mentioned, this story comes from another podcast, The Ghost Story Guys, hosted by Brennan Storr and Ian Gibbs. Ian is also one of the guides for Discover the Past Ghostly Walks, and was very kind to give this podcast a shout out on the latest episode. So, again, thanks to Ian. I've been listening to their podcast since it started a few years ago, and recalled a fantastic story that Ian told from his own experience living in New Brunswick. Now, we're not going to say where the house is, because it still exists and is quite occupied, but suffice to say that it is along the Canadian-American border next to Maine. This is what happened. Ian and his wife were in their twenties, and they ended up renting this house near the border over the winter. It was built in 1915, and was quite large, featuring five bedrooms and a newer addition out back, which was the kitchen. It was a very isolated old home, with forest all around and the ocean not too far away. As if that wasn't lonely enough, there was a driveway snaking through the forest for about a kilometer out to the road. When they moved in, they found the house okay to start with, although the basement was uncomfortable. They would avoid going down there whenever possible, and their cat refused to be down there at all. This is one of those haunted house stories that doesn't feature around the basement, though. I'm not sure that their experiences down there were ever connected to the rest of the house. It's the rest of the house where the real unsettling things began to happen. The house was always cold. No matter how many fires they had in the fireplace or how high they turned up the heat, it being November didn't help matters either. Therefore, the two always crawled into bed as early as possible so as to stay warm. It was while they were in bed that the first strange sound occurred. The driveway, as I mentioned, was quite long, and so they could hear the car approaching from a long way off. Finally, the car tires crunched on the gravel alongside the house, the engine turned off, and two car doors slammed shut. Who would be visiting them this late in the evening. They got up and looked out the window to the driveway. There was no car there but their own. Over the next week or so, the sound happened many times. They learned to ignore it. While they were getting used to the repeated visits from the invisible car, Ian discovered something else strange inside the house. The new addition, which held the kitchen, wasn't as well insulated as the rest of the house, and he would come downstairs in the morning to discover the door to the kitchen, which used to be the old back door to the property, was wide open and letting in cold air. He would close it. Every night before he went up to the bedroom, Ian would make sure that the kitchen door was closed. Every morning, he would find it open. He tried blocking it with a chair. The next morning, it was open again, and the chair off to the side. A few times while up in bed, he would even hear the door unlock and squeak open. He just learned to ignore this as well. The house began to feel very uncomfortable for the young married couple. It was as if something was very wrong, and they both began to pick up on it. The sounds were one thing, but the feeling was even stronger. "'Do you want to go into town?' Ian blurted out. "'Yes, yes I do,' responded his wife very quickly." Once in town and far away from the halls of the old house, they agreed that there was something very wrong with the place where they lived, but as temporary renters, they couldn't do much about it. They returned home. That night, something new happened. While they were in bed, they heard footsteps slowly walking up the main staircase. The footsteps stopped halfway up. Did you hear that? Ian asked. Yes, replied his wife. What else was there to do but to employ the same tactic as they always had? They ignored it. One night, a few days later, the house became very tense. Now, they weren't tense. Ian and his wife were as fine as they had always been. The house, though, seemed filled with some kind of nervous energy, and not in a good way. That evening they were once again in bed, reading with the bedside lamps both bright. The noises began, and Ian listened carefully. The car scratched along the gravel driveway. The two car doors slammed shut. Then the kitchen door, the old back door to the house, clicked and squeaked wide open. The footsteps began to climb the stairs, again stopping halfway. Oh my god, thought Ian this is a sequence of events. A brand new sound now accompanied the others, a huge bang right outside their bedroom door as if someone had taken about eight phone books and thrown them onto the floor. It shook the old house so much that Ian's water glass fell off the bedside table. Slowly, the couple closed their books, turned off the lights, and went to sleep. In the morning, nothing inside was out of place. No trees had fallen outside. There was no explanation for the loud bang anywhere. There were also no tracks in the snow on the ground either, which had fallen the day before and stopped when they had got home. Considerably rattled, Ian went into town and decided to get a haircut. He couldn't keep his mind off the sounds, now that he knew they were a sequence. He took a wild stab. "'Do you know anything about the old house in the forest?' he asked the hairdresser. "'Don't tell me you live there,' was the mortified answer. The hairdresser explained to Ian everything that had happened there. Ian went back home, found his wife, and instructed her to start packing. They were moving. Despite her questions, he refused to reveal anything he had learned about the house's history until they were gone from it for good.' They found an apartment in town and were out within the week. As they were driving down the long, winding driveway through the forest, a weird sensation seemed to tickle the backs of their minds. Don't look back, said Ian. You'll only invite it along. Once they were safely away from the old place, Ian spilled the beans. The house was built by the school board as a residence for the local teacher back in 1915. He had had a large family and so needed a large space. Once that family moved away, a new teacher, a single young woman, moved into the lonely house. It was during her tenure there that two U.S. prisoners escaped from a nearby American jail and crossed the border before stealing a car. They found the driveway in the woods one evening and drove along it until they discovered the very isolated house with one light on in the window. They stopped the car in the driveway and both got out. The prisoners went to the back door, opened it, and made for the staircase. Halfway up, they were confronted by the woman. Well, they ran at her, grabbed her, and threw her down the hallway at the base of the bedroom door. It's not for me to say what happened that night, but the woman was murdered in her house by the two men. That much we know. It's clear that the traumatic event was one that the house could never move on from. Did the woman, or the house, have a problem with a happy young couple living there when the young teacher had seen such a violent end within its walls? Perhaps. It just goes to show you that you've got to be careful when moving into a new place, for as much as you may like the house, the house very well may not like you.